Welcome everybody to another, well, our initial episode of Script V Manuscript. This is the uh, first, hopefully, of many episodes of Script V Manuscript, where we get together to discuss films and books, and films that have become books, and books that have become films. Indeed. So before we get into it, we got a we got a good one today to talk, to discuss. But since this is our inaugural episode, I want to do take a moment to talk about what we're doing here. So I am Terry. I am one of the co-hosts of the show, and this is my co-host Joe. Joe, what are we doing here? Well, you know, we're exactly what the doctor ordered: a couple of crackpots jumping on the internet with a couple of microphones, wanting to talk about stories. Sure. Uh, no, we, you know, you and I have a deep love of stories. Oh yeah. Right. Grew up on them. Um, some of us barter in them, mm. um, and certainly uh, we make our bones on understanding stories, understanding their impact, understanding how they, uh, as our as our good uh, as our as as one good man, Andy Wilson puts it, their soul food, right? Uh, sure. They impact us. They they sneak into our hearts. They sneak into our our souls. They catechize us into thinking about the world in a very specific kind of way. Yeah. And uh, we would like to see people be more thoughtful about stories. No we want doubt. Them to, you know, love good stories mm-hmm. and criticize less than stellar sure. uh, stories. And if if our voices can lend a, a helpful machete to the seemingly quagmire and thicket of bad storytelling these days, then, you know, that's what we're here to do. So Definitely. Stories themselves are neutral. They are a thing which can be harnessed for good or for evil. And uh, I'm a believer that, that human beings crave stories that remind them of the transcendent mm. and for whatever reason. Um, and there's, there's lots of places you can look to that. Even some of the most crude stories out there that we just find ourselves going back to repeatedly um, are, you can look at them and you can find why it is that, that we love these things. And we'll probably talk about some of those. Oh, sure. Here, Cause we're going to cover a lot of movies, a lot of books, um, and some of them probably are are not what what uh, the audience would expect. Sure, um, we're not we're not literary fuddy duddies. We we don't just read um, only classics, although you know we like those as well. Yeah, for sure. And uh, those are going to come up a lot. We'll use we'll use classics as a reference point because so many of the stories that we tell are drawn from the old ways, the old days and the old stories that have kind of stood the test of time. So, um, we will discuss those things. We have a, we have a really good one today though. We do. Um, so let's talk about Jurassic park. Yeah. Uh, nearly perfect movie. And, uh, it's going to be tough to balance the movies versus the books in here because both of us, neither of us are filmmakers, a little bit about our background, maybe in order. Sure. I'm a bookseller. I own bookstores, former teacher, and you are currently a teacher yes. of a number of things. Yeah. Uh, Latin's probably your, your flagship subject, I it would is. guess. But then uh, great books also. Great books also. Uh, yeah. Theology, literature, history, mm-hmm. you know, all kind of worked into that curriculum. So. Sure. And even, you know, even something as simple as the grammar of language has benefited greatly through the the addition of storytelling. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to just translate a sentence here and there, but it's a little more interesting it's do you, more than that. It's how we learn, right? It's you know, mm-hmm. it, it's how we um, sort of ingratiate different concepts, whether they be uh, morals, whether they be didactic tales. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, even in the instruction of language, storytelling is how we pick up basic syntax, grammar, 
Um, I teach Latin, so it's you know it's all about those case endings and oh, yeah. it's all about uh, conjugations and stories are how I do it. You know, mm-hmm. we read stories, we talk about characters. We some of them are funny, some of them are serious, but you know we have a good time with it. And, oh yeah. You know, there's something in us that yearns for storytelling. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When I was a teacher, I, I found uh, I had a lot of luck in. So composition was one of the classes that I had before I before I left. And it was a class which was notoriously dull mm. because it is basically the the composition that I had. I don't know if you've you haven't taught composition. I've not had the joy. OK, no. so composition was a drag um, to teach <laughs> up until I got it. And I actually um I actually enjoyed it a lot. And part of the reason was because they were, the students were supposed to be writing persuasive essays. Mm. And in order for, uh, in order to make the grading like possible to do in a, in a, a regular, you know, a normal amount of time, I thought, okay, well, we all need to write on the same concept. Like we need to talk about the same topic sure. so that I can kind of, you know, I don't ha- it doesn't require me to have an encyclopedia worth of knowledge about whatever they're discussing. So my first thought was like, okay, I'll just draw things that they should know. So I was like, all right, Robin Hood. Everybody knows Robin Hood. He stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Was that good or bad? Write your essay about whether or not this was moral. Sure. And I had kids in there who were like, I don't know. They didn't re- hadn't read Robin Hood. They, they'd maybe seen the cartoon or something like that, but they didn't know enough. I thought, okay, let's draw on stuff that they've had together from school. And uh, that worked a little bit, but we had some new students, and so the shared experiences weren't um, as expansive. It wasn't as I universal thought. in yeah. the class. Yeah. So what I decided to do instead was I drew on sci-fi short stories, which I victimized the students with because <laughs> that's what I wanted to read. Sure. But sure. they were they were short. We read them in class. It was a good way to get them. You know, they were all there was no nobody was skipping the reading. You know, everybody heard it at least. You may have been daydreaming, but you were there. Yeah. And it also kept them from having more reading homework, which is which is helpful for them. Yeah. But uh, they really enjoyed that. Um, they had a lot of fun with some of those stories. Now, some of them were not as fun as others, but you know, they, they can't all be, they can't all be winners, but there are some of those kids that I think will remember those stories, you know, past graduation. Yeah. That's awesome. They had a lot of fun with those. So long after they forget, you know, what a comma splice is or, you know, I mean, you know, or, or, or they even, maybe they don't forget how to do it, but they've forgotten the lesson itself. It's just been ingrained mm-hmm. and now they just do it naturally. Sure. But the story sticks with us. It sticks mm-hmm. to our ribs. It, yeah. You know, and they may in, even go back and look for those things later on in life. They'll think, yeah, that was really, I remember that. That was really a lot of fun. I'm sure. going to see if I can track that down. Sure. Uh, read more by that author, for example. So, you know, would it be good if we, you know, maybe just took a few minutes in each episode, maybe just talk about storytelling mechanics. We can do, you know, here's what good storytelling, here's some here's some practical things for mm-hmm. our listeners who maybe are interested in storytelling. They wanna sure. they wanna you know Yeah. They wanna so tell I stories. guess before we get into the meat of discussing our our subject for today, Jurassic Park, um, book by the same name. Uh, we we should get do our little pre pre segments yeah. a little bit. So the first pre segment that we had planned was just basically a what are you reading right now? Like sure. what are you into? I know what you're reading because we've yeah. been talking about it. So yeah. go ahead with that. Um, and, and I'll, I'll do, I'll go next. Yeah. You, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm very excited to talk about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just started Dune. So mm-hmm. for some of our readers, they're going to be like, what are you living under a rock? You haven't read Dune. Dune's a big uh, deal. Dune's it, an undertaking. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a haul. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm uh, about a hundred pages in probably just started yesterday yeah. and, uh, I'm hooked. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that you have some thoughts on, uh, the second half and how yeah. it, 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 it the writing style maybe changes a little mm-hmm. bit, but um, very, it's really, very, uh, yeah, it's really the POV character that 
that shifts. And that's, gotcha. that's my opinion. I, I haven't studied Dune like academically, but sure. um, we're going to probably do an episode on Dune before. Yeah. Then. So well, the movie, we won't the movie get into it too much. Yeah. Right. So at the time of this recording, it's, mm-hmm. you know, a couple days old, just a couple yeah. days old. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually trying to power through it. Maybe we can get, maybe we can sneak in a weekend episode or something, a little special edition for the, yeah. for the audience. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I'm reading. What, what are you getting into? So right now I'm reading, uh, I'm back to Hemingway yeah. of all things. I'm reading, uh, <laughs> Uh, one of his one of his last kind of major novels that I haven't read yet, which is um, uh, Farewell to Arms. Sure, yeah, uh, that's uh, one of one of the ones that everybody's like, oh, this is kind of a big one. Yeah, and it's just one that I haven't gotten around to yet. Um, I've read a lot of his obscure, weird ones that nobody knows, like his nonfiction about bullfighting and right. stuff like that. But um, you're a big fan of Hemingway. I do like Hemingway. Yeah. Um, Hemingway is a good one. Uh, so when I was in high school, I was made to read The Old Man and the Sea, mm. which up to this point, I've read, uh, I don't know how many of his books, but I've read maybe seven or eight of his novels, a couple of his nonfiction books, and almost all of his short stories. Right. Old Man and the Sea is my least favorite thing that he's written. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because it was probably his most uh, award-winning. It's the, last, it's the last novel that he wrote before yeah. he died. My favorite novel by him is uh the sun also rises which was his first novel unless i'm I'm mistaken um you can tell us in the comments if that's not accurate but uh i think it's i think it's his first it's one of his first one of his earliest and um i don't know i i haven't traced them all through like his chronology so i'm not sure if it's like he developed into a novelist that i didn't like as much Mm. but um there's something about a guy who can captivate with in, in many cases, stories that are pretty mundane. I mean, The Sun Also Rises is really just about some people who kind of like hang around Europe and go on vacation. Sure. There's a little bit of a love triangle. Wouldn't be interesting if it was somebody less talented. Right. Farewell to Arms is a little more. It's a war story, so there's action. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, that's we, what I'm reading. Uh, My wife and I had the pleasure of going on a cruise for our honeymoon, and... Uh, we went to Cuba. I'm, you know, you know that my grandpa, my grandparents are Cuban. My f- grandfather fought in the Bay of Pigs, but you know, obviously, um, he was a, Hemingway was a big fan of Cuba. Loved yeah. to love to go down there. This was, of course, before the missile crisis and things, sure. but um, love to spend time down there. Um, and they love him down there. They mm-hmm. they idolize him. And uh, in uh, Key West, in on on the on the state side, um, Hemingway had a house, and we had the opportunity to tour it. We took a tour of Hemingway's mm-hmm. house. And uh, there's a there's a penny that's cemented outside of his house mm-hmm. uh, where there's a they have they have a pool there and the story goes that his at the time I think it was his maybe his third wife he was married and yeah, he had some several times <laughs> yeah um, which if you read Hemingway you're like yeah that makes yeah. sense uh, but there's a penny that's sort of uh, cemented to the outside the grounds on the where the pool is and it's you know it's done in such a way where it's there it's going to be there for all of time but you can see it and um, the story goes that. You know, his wife, while he was away, had the pool installed. You know, they're at Key West. Sure. What are you buying a pool for? (laughs) And it was apparently very expensive. Mm -hmm. And he apparently, the story goes that he handed her this penny and said, uh, you know, you spent every other dollar that I have here. You might as well take my last penny. Hmm. And uh, I don't know. It just, it seemed very Hemingway. The, yeah. the the situation seemed Hemingway. I bring it up, though, because I bought Farewell to Arms there. And yeah. it was like a special edition, Key mm-hmm. West edition. You know, I've actually, so my sto- my bookstore is a used bookstore. And I've actually had some trade-ins of Hemingway. And I always, I always scoped them out to see if there's anything interesting. I've gotten sure. a couple of cool ones. But at least one or two of them that I've gotten from there have been stamped as being bought at the Hemingway house. Yeah, they have like sure. a, um, an embosser, I guess that they use on those right. or the, maybe they order them from the publisher that way. But they, uh, 
whoever somebody bought it there, somebody bought it as a um, direct from there. So I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna keep this. I have I yeah. didn't go there to get it, but um, it's they're a, cool. It's they're a unique. memento. Yeah, yeah, they're unique. Well, it's a big Hemingway fan. That's awesome. I mean, mm. I'm sure we'll get to I'm sure we'll get to some Hemingway before we're done here. Yeah. So. So that's uh, well, that's segment one. Segment one, check. <laughs> check. So next up, we have uh, this. Uh, we want to we want to not merely discuss storytelling, but we want to talk about how to be a good storyteller. Sure. And one of the ways you can do that, of course, is to observe, read, watch good storytelling, Absolutely. study it, figure out why, apply that to your storytelling. If that's something you're interested in doing, if you're trying to to do a novel, you know, if you're going to do. NaNoWriMo, um, if you're one of those folks, uh, which more power to you. If you want right. to crank out 40,000 words in a month, um, I don't think I'm going to have time this year. No. But let's talk about a basic thing, Storytelling 101. This time, we're going to talk about plot exposition. Sure. Um, plot exposition has to be done differently in movies and books, right? So in, in books, you can handle plot exposition. Regardless of how you do it, it pretty much has to be written in some form. Hemingway is a good example of how exposition can be extremely spartan and uh that is to the book's credit mm. right like there's a way there's a way to do it where you can you don't tell the reader anything they already know you can under you can underdo it to where nobody has a clue what's going on right like if you're doing something really abstract i remember reading a book um and this may be something we cover sometime but um by i think it's jeff vandermeer it's annihilation it's the name of the book okay. movie movie by the same name science fiction book very abstract um the movie is a little bit abstract, but it makes more sense in the book, and you and the book is very confusing, and it was confusing to the point where I was put off by it. Um, still worth my time to read, I think, but I was just like, eh, I would rather this guy sort of explain more. I like my structure, I like my solid, clear narratives. Sure. So in order to have those clear narratives, you got to tell the audience, whether it's a reader or a viewer, what what the heck is going on. Yeah. So that can be done poorly and it can be done well. So mm. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you think of a really good example of plot exposition? Let's say in film. Let's start with that. Plot exposition done really well. Uh, you are putting me on the spot here. Um, you know, I, I, I think about the movies that um, give me give me what I need. The show don't tell, mm-hmm. um, and they and I and I'm not lost in them. Um, I'm, I'm going to say this first. Uh, apparently, that's this is a major positive of the new Dune movie that a lot of people are saying that that this is one of the reasons why it's getting mm-hmm. such rave reviews. And that's been that, a that's been a hard thing well, for Dune pre- well, previous attempts at exactly. Dune. Yeah. And if you've read, you know, I've only read the first hundred pages, mm-hmm. but it makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, that's Dune is is tough. That yeah, it had a, a reputation as being unfilmable. Right. After the first, now there was a made-for-TV one uh, around the year two thousand that was pretty passable for yeah. made-for-TV. The David Lynch one is the one that everybody kind of knows. And sure. there was one, I think, before that. Um, yeah. And they, neither one of them uh, were particularly well-received. And part of that is because they're so... And David Lynch is an abstract, more abstract guy. He's got... Um, I mean, if you watch his other things, sure. if you watch like Twin Peaks or something like that, you just kind of are like, what? Well, um, another one that I think does it really well, though, and it's again, it's another hard book adaptation uh, to do. But I think Peter Jackson does a really good job of plot exposition in Lord of the Rings. Okay, um, that he moves those films along mm-hmm. in a way that is um, brisk and and keeps the audience engaged. Yeah. And I'm a I'm a huge Tolkien fan, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of diehard Tolkien uh, fans 
have issues with that film. I have issues with some of the oh yeah, it's not perfect. Choices. It's but not it is, perfect. It is awfully good. But it is yeah. it is as close to perfect maybe as I've seen as far as taking a book and putting it on film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think specifically in plot exposition, mm-hmm. uh, he does a really good job of using a couple of different techniques yeah. with narration, um, and then of course you know actual filmography. Mm-hmm. You know using setting. Um, you know he he uses a lot of different techniques. Um, but he moves the plot along in a way that is uh, engaging. Um, he covers a lot of ground and not a lot of time. You know, mm-hmm. everybody, the big complaint is those movies are super long. But when you have read Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. you know, he's covering a lot of ground and he's yeah. doing it in a pretty, pretty good amount of time. So that's probably the film I would go to. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've got a, a better choice, but. Well, so, uh, you know, part of the reason why it's difficult to come up with like a, a quick example is usually because if exposition's done well, it's invisible, right. right? Like you don't notice because the information's being given to you in a way that's so organic sure. that it's clear. Um, so uh, uh, I'm probably going to cite this example a lot, but if you've ever seen The Last Action Hero, um, that movie is meta in the sense that it no like it's a movie about a movie and it's um kind of a parody of 80s action mm. vehicles um, okay and they do they have a lot of fun with all the tropes and so if you watch that you'll see that they do plot exposition and it's and it's to the point where some of the characters will be like this is plot exposition <laughs> like they'll they'll call it out sure so um and and i don't remember if that's a specific line that's used but that's a good example of a place and if you're looking for like storytelling elements that's a fun movie to watch especially yeah. if you know like old arnold 80s movies and stuff like that another example would be one that i would look to is just the star wars title crawl yeah right? like star good. wars title crawl episode four you're think think put it yourself in those shoes of um it's 1977 i'm gonna go see a new hope in the movie theater know nothing about it right and um you know no internet to look up plot synopsis no leaks nobody cared because this was almost a b movie practically right um and uh and then you go and you sit down and now you have to be introduced into literally a whole galaxy of whatever is going on in the world right so the title crawl which is what three paragraphs not long ones not long yeah. Um, and you know what's going on. Sure. And then instantly you have little rebel ship pursued by giant death triangle. Right. right? And <coughs> you, you know, from that shot alone with no dialogue, all you need to know rebels, mm. rebels are under equipped. They're in trouble. They're out on the run. They get shot and lose. Sure. They have to run and hide. Everything sure. that they do is, is gotta be surreptitious. And then we're introduced to, a naive character who has to be told everything because he doesn't know it. And, um, and that is fluidly inserted into his arc where he goes from being a naive farm boy to, by the time you get to episode six, you have a guy who kind of knows his way around, right. you know, like he's a Jedi Knight, he's experienced warrior, he's dangerous. Um, and he's not the exposition guy anymore, but your POV character not knowing what's going on is a helpful way to do. Exposition. Oh, absolutely. That's so, a, that's classic. Yeah. You know, that's classic. He's, mm-hmm. he's asking all the questions that yeah. were, that we need answered as an audience. Right. Sure. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, that's storytelling one one right there. Yeah. 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 So if we droned on enough about, about plot exposition, I yet, think we've got it. I think we've, we, I just, think we've just a plot enough. exposition. You got to tell the audience what they need to know to, be invested in the story. Yeah, and and I think that you know one last note here before we move on, you know the 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 show don't tell mantra you know um, can can be a little confusing, right? Because there are things that you do need to tell, 
right? Yeah, sure. There are times to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but like going back to the Lord of the Rings movies for just a minute, Peter Jackson does a really good job of doing a narration in the opening scene, which gives you all about you know two thousand a thousand years worth of history, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then he he drops us in in the Shire, and immediately you have the stakes. This is yeah. what's at stake, mm-hmm. right? This this sort of agrarian pastoral yeah. um, paradise mm-hmm. um, of simpleton of simple of a simple life mm-hmm. is is what's at stake, yeah. you know. And so you. And that's shown. That's not told. He doesn't mm-hmm. tell us that, but you get that sense. You don't. You as a viewer, as an audience member, don't want bad things to happen to this place. Exactly. Right? And and so that right there is a really good merging of two things. Mm-hmm. Me telling you directly, here's what you need to know, but then also showing you and getting you invested. And that's the invisible part of plot exposition, mm-hmm. right? Is helping the audience to understand this is what's at stake, and this mm-hmm. is why you need to care. Is because these hobbits, these these innocent dare I say dumb hobbits sure. right there mm-hmm. um, we can say ignorant ignorant yeah. you know yeah dumb in the classical sense mm-hmm. right no, ignorant to the world yeah. ignorant to the to what's at what's at you know what's happening around them mm-hmm. uh this is what's at stake yeah. right and they just they we want them to be protected so and and you know and there's a in the book you get more it's more clearly shown how tenuous their position is yeah, right. Where they're actually being actively guarded. They're being by, guarded and they don't know and it. they don't know. Oh, because yeah. like they're sure. and, and why? Because the Rangers value like the Shire needs to be kept. Yeah. And they don't even live there. They're not from there. But they recognize, but they recognize. goodness when they when they see it. Yeah, it's and good. It's a Tolkien's world. Um yeah, that's good. Where where men will, will do good. Yeah. All right, so enough about this. That's Let's right. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Let's get into the meat of it. All right, so tonight we're talking about Jurassic Park. Um, Jurassic Park uh, came out. Uh, let's talk about the book first, right? The book sure. precedes the movie by not very long. Not very long at all. This um, is rare, actually. Yeah, this is a Michael Crichton book. Um, this is one of his earlier, earlier books. Mm. Um, and he wrote this at a time when cloning technology was really in the news a lot. Sure. Um, the, the idea that people could get a hold of DNA, find a way to make it. Um, this, I don't know if this was at the same time or near the same time when they successfully cloned a sheep. Um, but, uh, you know, Crichton, of course, takes this technological concept and says, well, what, what would we, if we could make anything, what would we make? You know, what would you bring back? And they even ask this question in the film. They talk about, right. oh, what if I brought back uh, California condors? Uh, those are just, I don't want to get too far ahead, but, um, so he's he's bringing this into into uh, the mainstream. He mm. writes this book, major best selling book. Yeah, sure. Um, really, uh, if he wasn't on the map already, he definitely was after this. And I mean, the la- uh, we've got six Jurassic Park films, five. Oh goodness, five, three, plus two, two. new ones. Right? Is there a third new one? Well, there's now? a TV show now. There's oh, a okay. kids show. Sure. Um, Got to be at least five films in a TV show. There so, is, there's definitely a TV show, and yeah. he's writing. Che- they're writing checks to Michael Crichton every time they do anything, Man. and he's just like, "All right, cool." Sure. Um, so uh, let's let's talk about the book. Um, so uh, 1990 was the publishing date for the first edition of the book. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but was Crichton in a um, like in the field of technology before he was an author? Is that right? Oh, I should have looked this up. I want to say Crichton's a doctor. Yeah, that might be it. Um, that might a be medical it. doctor. That yep. is, uh, and and that that shows through. He's clearly a yeah. man of some very some meticulous scientific knowledge. Yeah, I mean um, the the very meticulous author. Mm-hmm. Lots of technical detail. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought 
you know, maybe he was uh, in the field of technology, yeah. engineering, something like that. But like medical doctor makes sense too. I mean, it just yeah. bleeds through his work. So sure. Now he didn't limit himself to merely like biotech either. You know, some of his other things get into more more stuff. And really, this film includes a whole lot of computer tech right. stuff. Right. So. Um, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the gist of it. So he's writing this, he's writing this at a time when when cloning is new. We've got this this interesting concept, and so of course, in order to make an interesting story, you take uh, cloning sheep is boring. What we let's clone dinosaurs. Right. Let's talk about monsters from the past, um, and uh, and so he brings it up. So plot synopsis of the book. Yeah, so you know we have we open up with um, this sort of it actually opens up as a, almost like a, a corporate. Um, thriller, right? We've got you know different warring companies. There's a lot of espionage, and mm, you know you you get almost this. Uh, you you don't when you. I remember thinking when I first started reading Jurassic Park, you know, because I had seen the film first, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and then I you know went back and read the book, and I remember thinking this is this feels weird. Mm-hmm. This is not you know sci-fi horror mm-hmm. right you know sci-fi not a, thriller not a, not a monster movie you know it's not a monster this isn't a monster book this is some tom clancy or you yeah. know mm-hmm. some 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 something and uh but it, it does have this sort of corporate espionage feel to it um but then we quickly very quickly move into you know the heart of the story and we're, we're introduced to hammond um and you know he's bringing in these uh you know these experts to mm-hmm. to look at his to look at his park and you know uh, a couple of things immediately strike me one the Grant character in the book is significantly older mm-hmm. um, yeah. and um, or or I guess I say significantly older he's he's older than um, the the Sam Neil Sam Neil yeah. right she she's I get maybe it's better to say she's younger um, yeah oh yeah uh, yeah the the um the the romance plot sort of yeah uh, on the undercurrent of romance between. Ellie Sadler right. and uh, Alan Grant is not in the book. Right. Um, she's almost, I guess she's more of an intern of his or a student of his. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one thing right off the bat. Right off she, the bat mm-hmm. that, that strikes you. But, uh, you know, they all they all get to the island and um, the, the book kind of follows the movie pretty, pretty generally in the sense that, you know, things start to unravel the chaos theory. We'll mm-hmm. get to that, you know, when we talk about worldviews and such. But... Um, you know, the, the, the park starts to unravel the, the, the dinosaurs are breaking containment. Mm -hmm. They're getting out and, uh, you know, the kids are, the kids and Grant get lost, uh, get lost in the park and they're, they're trying to get back and trying to evade a pretty persistent T-Rex. Yeah. And then in the book, it's a, you know, it's a, like sort of a mother and a child. There's a sort of a, there's a a young and an old sort of, it might not be mother and child, but young Mm -hmm. and old. Um, so like there's one that's kind of like you're like I can probably get around this guy mm-hmm. and then there's one that's just like if he finds yeah. you it's over mm-hmm. and uh and uh so yeah and then, and then in the also in the book our our lawyer characters actually sort of split into two characters in yeah. the book mm-hmm. um, you want, I don't know if you want to cover that a little bit uh well so um there's a lot of character differences right there's sure. it's hard to know exactly where to start Alan Grant is mostly the same he's uh he's um, no nonsense. Uh, he's less of an action hero in the book. There's really not a clear action star. Uh, and, and, you know, the, it's not that kind of a movie either. Like he's not running around blowing away dinosaurs sure, with a shotgun. Sure. There's a little bit of gunplay, but they don't, they don't, uh, the evasion and escape is the, is the goal. It's not to, to kill all the, the animals and, and escape. Right. Um, so, 
Uh, he's he's knowledgeable about dinosaur habits from having been a a paleontologist, studied dinosaurs, um, and uh, the the lawyer in the movie is. Um, I cannot remember the actor's name that played him, but he he is he is portrayed as kind of a sniveling, conniving kind of scummy guy right. who is really only interested in profit. Um, now, when they present him, uh, he is presented as like a pencil neck, safety first kind of guy, and right. and, uh, and so the inciting incident for the movie is not the same as for the book, yeah, right? Like sure. the. Um, there's there's rumors that a that creatures have escaped from the island right. in the book. Um, they're unconfirmed. Throughout the book, there's like a B plot of them trying to figure out what kind of animal this is. There's a dinosaur, a tiny one, a compasagnathus, if anybody cares to look that up. Um, gets gets away from the island. They're not sure initially how. Gets eaten by a monkey or partially eaten by a monkey, but it bites a kid who gets sick from bacteria, um, and its remains are sent all over. You know, it kind of follows it around every once in a while, checks back in, and then they figure out eventually that it's a, a dinosaur. Mm. Um, so how did it get away? Uh, and, you know, this is part of the chaos theory that they're, he's sprinkling in there. Like, you right. can't control – technology cannot control nature. Right. Um, and uh, and life will find a way to, to get away and do its thing. So these things are in the world now. So anyway, the rumors are that there's been a containment breach and experts are brought in to assess the island. And this is the same in the, in the movie, except in the movie it's more like very clear cut. The initial scene in the movie, when you watch it, which is just a incredible way to start this it kind is. of a movie gosh it's good it's Spielberg's got great. it brings up the universal logo the music is already playing but it's not the big um it's not the big bombastic score of right. williams it's very subdued sounds like jungle music but it's nighttime sneaking around music lights come up palm leaves very poorly like underlit kind of subdued lighting something's coming right shaking the leaves and then from from that emerges not a dinosaur, which is kind of what you were led to believe, right? But rather a machine of some kind. Turns out it's a forklift. It's got a box on the front of it. The box contains a dinosaur, and they are undergoing some kind of transfer or something. They're moving this dinosaur from from wherever it was to the general population of its species. Um, so they, you know, this is a scene where lots of guys are there they're all they're being overseen by their game warden guy Muldoon um who's one of the great characters in the movie yeah and uh, uh in the process of this a man is killed um by one of the dinosaurs the dinosaur that they're trying to move now this in the movie also sets up the velociraptor as the primary adversarial creature sure and this specific one is um mentioned as being particularly bad right right like there he, he later will will d- divulge to grant that when we moved this one in we had lots of them but this one killed everyone yeah. except for two except for it two. kept two that it wanted to kind of like have as its you know as its um specific like beta hunters. yeah she's, i guess she's the alpha their pack. yeah they're, they're the betas and so and then of course they they end up having to deal with this problem later right in the movie so that's how it's set up now that guy dies, cut away, and we are introduced to the lawyer who is looking for experts to come to the island to assess the island's safety. Right. So he brings in an attorney, a paleontologist, a paleobotanist, which is, in the movie, you're like, why? Sure. But in the book, that's more clear. In the book, it's more clear. Yeah. 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 Um, and then they bring in a mathematician 
um, named Ian Malcolm, who's right. kind of a famous academic at the time. In the in the in the context of the book, he's and the movie, he's kind of like a pop academic, I guess you could say. He's like a rock in the book. He's like a rock star. Yeah, is that right? Or on, uh, in no, the movie, he, in the refer, movie he jokes about him being he a rock star. Jokes yeah. about him being rock. That's right. I don't That's think right. he's literally one, but he's like a he's he's one. Of, he's like a what kind of a mathematician is a household name? Well, this guy, sure. I mean, he's sort of like a, like Neil deGrasse Tyson type. Right. Um, he's, he's kind of left serious academics behind and he's kind of more appealing to the popular culture. And so his credentials are questionable. Right. And is he a real, is he, does he really know what he's talking about? Or is he like right. a flim flam artist kind of thing? That's right. Um, really, really perfectly portrayed as by Jeff Goldblum. Oh, Jeff Goldblum, yeah. And between great. the book and the film, this is the character that's most consistent, I would say. Yeah, that's. I think that's accurate. Yeah. I think that's 100% accurate. Um, so, uh, that's the situation. That's those are the, And then you have the um, John Hammond, main, main character John Hammond, who was the head of InGen, which is a corporation that cloned these things, um, creates the Dinosaur Park. And in the book, he is uh, just a jerk. He's awful. Um, oh, he's so terrible. He is a he's a he cuts he's shortcutting everything. He's right. trying to find ways to rip everything off and just sure. do lowest bidder type stuff. Sure. Um, in the movie, he's portrayed as much more of a sympathetic character. Yeah, he's more of an idealist. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got a vision. Yeah, um, he's made mistakes. Yeah, but it's not really his fault. He just lacked the foresight. Right. And in the movie, it's pretty much his fault because he he refused to take the threat seriously and right. do what needed to be done to make sure things were safe right yeah and, and motivations are just totally different yeah right? motivations um, are just totally different so uh that's that's the setup these are yeah. our cast of care his, and his grandkids yeah. also come just to raise the stakes right <laughs> children get there um they they don't really serve a huge uh, purpose to the plot the movie finds stuff for them to do the book doesn't well but spielberg's <laughs> good at that i yeah. mean you know, he's just good at finding mm. ways to incorporate children yeah. in meaningful ways in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Crichton is not. Sure. It's, it, you know, the Jurassic Park has a lot of good things, a lot mm. of things going for it, um, but the children is not one of them. <laughs> yeah, they kind of, they're there um, in, you know, they're there to, to, to make us worry. Sure. Um, you know, I think if Grant was by himself running from a T-Rex, you'd be like, ah, he's got it. Sure. Right. In storytelling, one of the things that's really helpful, if you're a story, if you're a story writer, teller, um, movie maker, note this: a lot of times it's helpful for you to put the wrong man in the wrong situation, right? Like if you, if you, and and you, you can see both versions of this, right? Where you've got like, oh, an elite Navy SEAL crashes his plane in the African jungle and he has to fight child soldiers to save his wife. And you're like, well, who cares? He's a seal. He can right. do that. He's right. Do that. Right. He'll be able to win. Uh, and you know, and, um, but if it's like a kid coming home from space camp crashes in Mexico and has to escape the cartels. And you're like, well, he's totally under equipped to sure. deal with that kind of violence, sure. but we know that he went to space camp. He's smart. He'll, and he outsmarts somebody who uses his aerospace knowledge to like get away and maybe gets teamed up with a street urchin who knows yeah. the lay of the land. And they, they start to learn from each sure. other, right? And now you have a little adventure mm-hmm. quest. And they right? get to grow. They get to learn and grow, right? And, um, so the wrong man in the wrong situation is a really good way to get people interested in what you're doing. Sure, right? hook them in. Um, and if you, but if it's like, and that's the reason why you see this. Uh, for instance, um. You have uh, the movie Aliens, right? Sure. Aliens with Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver is uh, just a, like a pilot or something on a freighter. 
In the first film, she manages to narrowly evade dying in that movie. Sequel, she's with a bunch of Marines, right? They're all there. Throughout the movie, they're getting picked off, and it's just down to her and like one guy who's wounded and a child. Mm-hmm. Now she's by herself and has to go rescue the child who's been captured by monsters. Wrong person for that job, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, but we're behind her 100%. Um, because basically that movie's commentary on motherhood, which we can talk about maybe another time. Sure. But, um, but there's there's a lot to that, and so you've got Grant. He needs he needs something to like make him vulnerable, right? And let's throw some kids we'll on him, children. yeah, and uh, and make it a T Rex, so it's really extra scary, right? Um, so that's he's wandering around with with the children for that part of it. Now in the movie, they do something different with him, right? His character arc, at least part of it is. That he has, he hates kids. Right, right. There's a kid sure. that that's introduced to us. Kind of looks like a young Jake Gyllenhaal. That's a great scene, man. Um, and uh, he messes with the kid. Kind of makes a snide remark about how raptors are sure. lame, and he Just threatens to he threatens to gut him with a raptor claw, basically. <laughs> and uh, it's established that he doesn't like kids. Doesn't right. like them. Doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Um, has a conversation with Ellie Sadler about kids, and he doesn't even like babies. He thinks babies smell bad. Right. So. He's introduced to a kid who one of them has, I think it's implied that one of them has a crush on him, the girl. Right. And then one of them is obsessed with him because he's like a dino. Yeah, he's like a dino. Head. Yeah, and he, he's read can, all his books. And, right. and so it's like, you know, he's that's how he feels about the situation. Throughout the film, he develops legitimate concern for them and shows kind of fatherly protective instincts yeah. uh, down to the climax of the film where he's hiding them behind his own body to yeah. shield them from attack. Right. It's, yeah. Um, and he does this and it feels so natural. It does. Like you don't, you don't sit here going like, why does he care about them now? Well, because they've been through all this whole story and right. we've seen it. And um, he goes from being a man who's just a little too decent to let kids just get hurt compared to some other characters who don't care. <laughs> who actually don't care. And right. then he becomes like, oh, I really care about them. Yeah. And then like the very final scene where the kids are falling asleep on him in his lap while they're flying away from the island. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this, <laughs> came out in 93. Don't blame me. Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, that, that Spielberg is great. I mean, he's just so great at being able to work children into um, these, you know, serious situations and mm-hmm. giving them purpose and helping us to, you know, appreciate their innocence and want to value them as, and protect them. And, you know, Sam, um, Sam Neill does a great job, you know, portraying Grant and mm-hmm. activating that thing in all of us. That's like, you know, we need, this is something that's worthy that needs to be protected and I'm willing to do it at all costs, sure. you know? So, so that's great in the book, man, they just come across as annoying, you know, they do, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't know if that's, a deficiency in Crichton and not just being able to appreciate a child's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just ba- bad situations, but it, you know, I don't partic- feel particularly endeared to them yeah. as a, as a reader in the most vague sense. You're like, I hope nothing kills children. Sure. Right? Sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, to but be clear, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing about Tim and Lexi in the book that you particularly are. Like, oh, I want what's best for them. I'm right. curious about what they'll do with their future. Like, it's just kind of like, okay, they, they're still breathing. Get them out of here. Yeah. Um, in, in the movie. Now, they, of course, in some of the sequels, those two actors show up again. And they just sort of have bit parts where they just say, hi. Remember bye, us? Right. And that's the end of it. Just a way to kind of tie the two films together. I think it was in The Lost World where they, they make an appearance. But, sure. uh, of course, the little boy is um, still acting. He was in The Pacific. Um, oh, that's the last man. time I remember seeing him. He played a major character in that. Um, 
and uh, I don't remember about the girl. But anyway, um, so I mean, differences between the book and the movie are are um, there's a lot of character changes. Yeah, I would say from a plot perspective, you know, except for the very end. Yeah. The very you, before we move on from plot, do you want to talk about that really quickly? Sure. Just that that this raptor nest that they have to mm-hmm. go find, yeah. and there's that that one piece of dialogue where, you know, it's basically like Grant um, saying like we've got to go take care of this, and nobody wants to go take care of it. Or it's not not Grant; it's the uh, lawyer character, yeah, the second mm-hmm. one, where he's like, we've got to do something about this, and which felt out of place this this is another helpful hint for those you know want to be storytellers yeah, characters need to act consistently yeah. right they need to yeah. behave consistently it's very as, jarring otherwise yeah, yeah it's it's incredibly jarring otherwise and you know i i got a little bit of that with his character and maybe i just am missed something maybe you know mm-hmm. uh, but you know they go to this raptor nest and it, it it just seems very clearly there to set up a sequel potentially right the lost maybe world so, yeah. Um, because raptors do get off the island, they mm-hmm. get off on a on a freighter. Or well, some they stop them. That's like the that's there. It's like the, the ticking clock. That's right. right that's right. That's and right. they they go down to. I want to say that what they were trying to do was make was count them or something. They were trying to determine. Oh right. Are any missing that are supposed to be here? Right. And they get down there and they have bread like that, which is supposed to be impossible because similar to the movie. In theory, all the dinosaurs are female, female right. can't can't breed. Um, they get down there and they find some juvenile ones and some eggs and stuff. And so, uh, I don't see any point in being able to track them. In the movie or in the book, there the dinosaur there's motion trackers all over the place, right? Um, and uh, they are like, oh no, we, we have the right amount of dinosaurs. And then they, you know, they analyze the data more closely. They determine that oh wait a minute, there's like two more than there should be. And if there's two more, like this is supposed to be like a oh crap kind of moment where sure. it's like there could be more than there that. There could be more than that. Um, and and if there's more and we have rumors of someone getting off, then we really have no idea. Right. And so the idea is we got to go down there and find out if these things are still here or if some of them have gotten away. They determine that some have gotten on board a boat. But they do manage to stop the boat. That's right. That's the ticking uh, clock. And it was right like two minutes until the freighter leaves. What do we, you know? And they, I can't remember exactly what the device is that they have to do to to communicate with them. But mm-hmm. they managed to do it at the last second. Um, they don't bother with that in the movie. the The freighter situation in the movie that is in the movie, but it's there for a specific reason, and it's to isolate the cast, uh, right? So like, Jurassic Park has like a big staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's animal handlers, there's janitorial staff, there's like any number of normal like well, you theme would park people. Sure. Yeah, there's automated like engineers, which that ends up being they end up being major characters in both movie and book. Um, Samuel L. Jackson, of course, is probably the most memorable of them. Dennis Nedry, um, right. who's played by the guy who plays Newman, who I can't remember <laughs> his name. He does a great job. He's great. Um, but uh, that character is also there. So they um, they have all the regular staff, but it's on an island way out in the middle of the Caribbean. Sounds right. I, I can't remember. It talks about, they, I want to say they leased it from Costa Rica. So Gulf of Mexico, I think. Yeah, somewhere. Gulf of Mexico. Jungly area. So they... they the staff is ferried back and forth by a ship that comes and, and drops them off and they leave for the weekends or, you know, it doesn't really go into much detail about how they do that. Bad storms coming in. Let's just get everybody out of here. We're going to, you know, we don't need them. We'll right. just sort of fix things when we get back. They're not worried about the power grid failing. Um, and uh, so in the movie, 
there's a ticking clock element for Nedry, who is a spoiler alert again. <laughs> Skip to this time code if you don't want spoilers. <laughs> I'm not going to put a time code in, so don't be looking for it. Um, just turn the video off. Um, so he is a corporate spy who has been assigned by someone else uh, to steal DNA that they can now use to clone because right. they want to they want to steal the engine the engine tech yeah and he's been paid to do that so he's he does this and his intrusion into the security system triggers the cascade failure which ultimately results in uh, the fences failing the door locks failing everything all the automated systems that are supposed to keep the people and the dinosaurs in separate spaces so they don't get eaten fail mm-hmm. and it's just a question of time as to like who's going to get out what's going to happen. Um, and in the movie, that's, that's kind of how it's done. Same, same in the book. It's a, um, it's the weak point that he, he messes up. Nedry has to get those things, get to the boat in time to escape. He does not. Right. Um, <laughs> he fails to do so. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, plot wise, uh, if you've seen Jurassic Park, the movie, you're getting pretty much Jurassic Park, the book. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah. Uh, I, you know. There are obviously going to be it some drops off, It drops off the last hundred pages. Yeah, um, that's the the most which, divergence comes at the end. Yeah, um, but but what you're if you watch the movie, what you're getting a totally different experience in is the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I would even say major themes. Yeah, I think I think Crichton is trying to do something. Is trying to uh, tell a story uh, to appeal to a very specific theme that Spielberg doesn't even really try to touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Hammond in the book is, you already mentioned this, he's just a crony capitalist, mm-hmm. right? He does, does everything on the cheap. He's looking for shortcuts. Mm-hmm. He's trying to maximize his profit, minimize his costs. He's a skin flint. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, uh, he receives his just end. Yeah. You know, and I think Crichton... Um, wants us as the audience, as the reader, as we read Jurassic Park, to feel a sense of justification that the naturalist uh, world that he has given birth to consumes mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Right. And it's in these um, the little dinosaurs. I can't remember what they're the called. The copies. Now. Yeah. yeah. They all sort of swarm him. He he's got a busted leg or some. You know, he's got some sort yeah. of sprained ankle or something. Similar similar to the movie. He has he has a cane. Yes, he's older. He has a cane. Um, I don't know if his injuries ever explained. I don't but know what it is either. He stumbles and and hurts his leg a little bit. Yeah, and, and he's they, unable to escape from them. And they catch up yeah. to him, and and he goes down. And uh, you know, reading the book, you feel a grim satisfaction in his demise. You yeah, you, you yeah. know, he's he deserves it. He deserves it, yeah. right? He he's caused an unspeakable harm mm-hmm. to. And you know, he's looking for ways to sweep all that under the rug, right? Right. right. So he he's he's hopefully you don't want this guy to get away with what he's done. Sure, it's really his mostly his fault. And so the you know begs the question, right? Uh, what is Crichton? Um, trying to leave us with as as readers you know from a thematic standpoint what does he want uh you know that soul food you know what's its flavor and and what's it what's it kind of building up in us and i think these are legitimate questions and you know what i get away from when i walk away from jurassic park is you know some themes are connected you know in the sense that we have this over dependence on technology we think it will save us Mm -hmm. but it you know um you know, the naturalist says that life is cruel, right? And, yeah. and uh, nature is na- red in nature- tooth and claw. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. And so, you know, those themes are similar in movie and mm-hmm. book. But there's this whole other 
theme in the book mm-hmm. about you know the, the sort of the destructive nature of capitalism mm-hmm. and you know big business is um, kind of always out to get you and you know it's and again it's it's set up from the very beginning with this espionage this corporate espionage yeah. flavor. All this greed is causing problems. Yeah, yeah, and so and and that's really not in the movies at all. No, um, you, uh, the corporate espionage is there as a plot point, mm-hmm. but I don't think Spielberg wants us to take it away as a major thematic. You know, no, takeaway. It's a, it's a. I, I would use the term contrivance loosely because it, it isn't a negative thing. But we, I think that we as viewers are meant to think, oh, that's unjust. Right. They shouldn't be stealing from this guy and his hard work. Right. You really like John Hammond. Yes. From the first minute right. you meet him. I mean, let's talk about his character introduction. Yeah, right. Sure. Like uh, character introductions are very important. I mean, we're getting, getting back to um, to storytelling one hundred and one kind of here. So, when you bring a character on screen for the first time, what do we? How, what do you want us to know about this person? So, we meet John Hammond when his private helicopter lands at the dig site. What a scene! And he lands the private helicopter in such a way that he endangers. The work of the academics who have been very carefully extracting dinosaur bones and they're in emergency mode trying to cover this all up. So we immediately know that John Hammond has a problem with paying attention to details. Right. Right. Like he's a little bit clumsy. Yep. Um, and just that little detail. Yeah. It could good. have been that he landed over there. Sure. And it, nothing happened interesting and he just was in the trailer. So they go into the trailer and this is this is additionally continuing the introduction of Alan Grant and Ellie Sadler, both of whom are extremely angry about this, right? Like right. they're like, "What jerk?" You know? Yeah. So he busts in their him, right mind would you know? And uh, Hammond pops the cork on some champagne, and they're like, "We were saving that," and he just says, "Oh, I assure you for today." For today, I um, and so <coughs> they they recognize that he's John Hammond. They know him by reputation because he funds them. Right. Right. They they have a grant through his uh, foundation, I assume. I don't yeah. really remember if it goes into much detail. But when Ellie Sadler comes in, she is also angry and, and Grant calms her yeah, down. He's and like, like oh. hey, it's Dr. Ham or John Hammond. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it uh, great? <laughs> yeah. And so um he tells them a little bit about very little bit. It's very vague, very um and a that preserve. looks uh, it's a conservatory a nature preserve a nature preserve set up a sort of a preserve <laughs> and i'd like to have some expert opinions about it and they don't understand why he would want them sure right? it's a waste of time we're um, really busy here but he's he promises to fund their research for more for three more years right. which um fully funded. for academics is a big deal yeah right? fully funded um, especially if you're doing field work and all that so uh he he does that now we now we know john hammond is He's excited, yeah. but he's also, he likes, he's like Santa Claus, yes. which is funny because this actor played Santa Claus in The Miracle on 34th Street. Um, That's fantastic. He, uh, and I can't remember his name, but um, he's, uh, uh, it's going to bother me. Anyway, um, so he's he's joyful, he's happy, he's jolly. Yeah. Um, he's excited about what he's doing, and he's generous with his rewards yes. for people who, um you know, are, are willing to like get on board with his yep. vision, and yep. um, and and you just immediately are like, I'm, I want to know what this guy's got going sure, on. Sure. Now, of course, as audience, there's a little bit of irony. We know dinosaurs are involved, right? And we know, okay, he's going to dinosaur experts. They're going to be confused because their first thought is not going to be this guy's resurrected dinosaurs, right? Obviously, but uh, but you know, they they go along with it. 
you know, there will, it's whatever free vacation. We're going to some Island. Sure. Whatever. Um, flies first class. Uh, they arrive at the Island and we get one of the, one of my favorite scenes in any movie probably. And that's the introduction of the Brontosaurus. Yeah. Um, when they're driving in the Jeep and, um, what a scene. And you get John Williams score at his, he's firing on eight cylinders on that one. He is. And, uh, just the reveal of that dinosaur, which brings us to an interesting point about the films. A technical note, this is one of, if not the first movie where CGI was used to animate animals. Mm. Um, early versions of this um, were stop motion. And Spielberg, I think it was Spielberg, it might have been the effects guy whose name I can't remember, but somebody was unsatisfied with stop motion. Like, we can't make it fluid enough. We need to try something else. I have an idea. This, this concept is, is available now. I have no idea how much it would have cost, but this movie is a case study in every trick in the book. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. Um, robotics, puppetry, uh, miniatures, and now CGI. Now the brontosaurus we see, of course, is CGI. Right. Um, and, uh, it, you know, if you watch it now, you're like, it doesn't look as good as modern CGI. It's very brightly lit. It's broad daylight when they show the thing. Right. Later, we have some CGI creatures at night in the rain. Very smooth. Really holds up. Yeah, really Even holds today. Up. Yeah. Um, and uh, hopefully they never do anything stupid like go back and try to fix anything. Just leave no. it alone. It's Why, good. Who would do that? Who would go back into a film and <laughs> who, would, who would try to fix something that is perfect? You uh, know? Well... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's a that's a technical thing. Sure, um, that uh, they were, and you know, I'm sure Crichton was like, "Oh, great technology!" You know, right. bring that in. Um, well, an irony of ironies, right? Because technology, you know, mm-hmm. the advent of this new technology um, being used to make this groundbreaking film mm-hmm. uh, that's going to capture the hearts of millions, and it's being done in a film yeah. that's talking about the danger of being. You know, too loose, too loose cannon with technology. Yeah, right? technology is double edged. <laughs> so, you know, iron and, it, iron and it for sure is. And we've seen now through the horrors of CGI that like you can't even die in peace anymore, right? Like, right. Speaking of Star Wars, sure. um, Peter Cushing was brought back for Rogue One, right? And uh, they did the same thing to Carrie Fisher, Carrie right? Fisher, right? And I, I'm sure that they, you know, I'm sure they jumped through the hoops, got permission from the families, but like. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, it's a, so. it's an odd ethical question, right? Yeah. Um so it you know it is it is you know sort of an irony of ironies. So we have a we have a, a thematic a, a, I think what is a significant thematic divergence between mm-hmm. the two between the two works here, right? So Crichton obviously technology um is a major theme in both and and the you know the the use of technology. Um but this idea of um Hammond his motivations um, capitalism mm-hmm. um, versus, uh, you know, an ideologue mm-hmm. who's trying to yeah. give us something. Who specifically says, I want this to be affordable for regular people, right? right? In the movie version, he's like, nah, it can't be just for the super rich. We've right. got to find a way to make it profitable for, for us to do this. The movie, the book version would not have said that. Yeah, he, yeah that's um, not even close to being on his uh, mind. Yeah. Yeah, so Hammond, Hammond is definitely uh, significantly different. Uh, who's not different? You already mentioned this is Ian. Yeah, Ian Malcolm, and he has a really famous scene in the movie. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum maybe at his best in the film, mm-hmm. um, where he talks about the technology piece, mm-hmm. right? And he says um, to the something to the effect of, you know, you stood on the shoulders of giants, you didn't earn it, 
Yeah. But you packaged it, you patented it, you mm-hmm. slapped it on a lunchbox. Yeah. Um, and you have no idea mm-hmm. what you're dealing with. Now, that is in Crichton's yes. book. Uh, yes. The theme. The theme is in Crichton's Malcolm's, book. Malcolm plays basically the same role. Yeah. He is the, he is the, conscience, of the conscience of the story. Yeah, that's good. Um, he's the guy who's supposed to make you say, are we really sure this is a good idea? Right. Um, now, more characters do that mm-hmm. in the movie. Um because that whole that scene, um, they're they're standing around or they're sitting there talking. You want to talk about it acting? It's a bunch of seasoned pros. Yeah, and they're sitting around eating dinner. Right, and it's fascinating to watch. That's a great know, scene because they act well. Yeah, and everybody basically says, "This is dangerous. I don't know about this." Sure. Except for the blood sucking lawyer, as Hammond calls him, because the lawyer's like. This we, is great. Yeah, we're going to make millions. We're going to make mil- yeah, yeah, this is outstanding. He's completely forgotten about the safety side, which is really what he's there for. Right. And the other characters are all like, and yeah. by now they have seen the brontosaurus and the, the, the raptors. I think they saw the raptors. They before, saw the, ca- they see the cage. That's a joke because they feed the raptors and it's gross. And then they're like, all right, bunch is ready. Right. And it's like a, you know. It's that's like, right. But um, it's kind of thing. So. Um, so they, they know that the dinosaurs are real. They've seen a few of them. They've been told there's a T-Rex. Have you, they seen the sick triceratops at this point or not No, yet? that's, not yet. that's right that's before everything falls apart. Right. Um, so they, they will, that's before the, the, they're eating before the kids arrive. Sure. That's right before. So it's just the adults in the room. And, um, and Malcolm is the one who's most clearly articulating like caution is in order. Sure. And, um, you, you, if you think you can control this, you're wrong. Right. Um, so that's, that's present in the book. In fact, yeah. that's really probably the key element of the book. Well, and that's the, this is where Spielberg is a genius, mm-hmm. right? So the, the, the theme of life, of the, the chaos of life and mm-hmm. life finding a way, another famous Goldblum scene, yeah. uh, where, you know, life finds a way and then Grant repeats it when he sees the little yeah. footprints in the eggshells, right? Um, is, is actually hinted at at the very beginning of the film, mm-hmm. right? So um, we have the scene uh, that you've already fa- described, the very famous scene where, the, where they see the brontosaurus. But just before that, um, when the helicopter is coming in, you know, Grant tells them, you know, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a rough landing, right? Yeah. And he's preparing for them. And I love the scene because it, it tells us a lot. This is another thing, you know, introductions are important. Sure. Seeing what characters are doing is important. You know, Grant is having a hard time with the seatbelt mm-hmm. because he's a... Uh, you know, he's a no-nonsense, big-picture guy, right? He's, he's also been shown to be technologically yeah, backward. Yeah, like right. He, he can't get the... He doesn't like computers. He can't get the screen to work. Just touching the computer makes it kind of he glitch. He breaks it. And he's like, uh, I broke it. get this computer away from right. me. Right. So it's, technology's uh, not his friend. Yeah, so he's trying to get his seatbelt, mm-hmm. you know, done, right? Yeah. And he uh, he can't he can't get it figured out. Mm-hmm. So he actually takes two seat two seat belts and he just kind of ties them, right? Yeah. He, he he's a uh, he's a you know sort of a MacGyver, yeah. you know, and and that's that's important because he's going to need those kinds of mm-hmm. quick thinking skills as he's yeah. trying to survive the park. Think outside the box, right? Think outside the box. But a little a little piece that a lot of people miss, and I know you know what I'm talking about, yeah. <laughs> is both of those seat belts. Have female ends. Yeah, he right. They, he's whatever. He's sitting on the male end or something. Sure, it's, it's missing. He can't find it. You know, so. you need male and female in order to connect the seatbelt, yeah. and he finds a way. Yeah. Right, and so you know that there's there are all these little things that Spielberg does in order to to sort of subconsciously kind of let mm-hmm. us know, like, hey, this is what the film is about. And I think this is where both Crichton and Spielberg, 
you know, the book and the movie, obviously this is where they really shine because it's, it is a, uh, message it's a theme that our culture desperately needs to hear mm-hmm. right uh technology is just running rampant in our lives you know I, w- I watched the the documentary recently made called the social dilemma and it talks about how you know we can't even predict what the world's going to look like uh in uh, the number i think they used was maybe 20 years maybe it was less than that but it's just basically technology is 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 outpacing our understanding of it in mm-hmm. such a way that that there's no way for us to reasonably predict the world that our kids are going to live in yeah. at this point, right? Which was not true a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. which is not true five hundred years ago, yeah. right? Um, and so you know, and they talk a lot about just the ne- the negative impacts mm-hmm. that technology has had on us, you know, socially, economically, mm-hmm. um, psychologically, sociologically, and uh, you know, it's kind of as you're watching a documentary like that and there are points that they make that maybe you disagree with, maybe you agree with, but as you watch a documentary like that, you wonder, you know, did you not watch Jurassic Park? Sure. You know, let's go look at that scene by Goldblum. Mm -hmm. You, you patented it, you packaged it, you slapped it on a lunchbox, you gave it to children and you didn't ask. You didn't think there'd be a cost. Right. You didn't think there, you you didn't, you never stopped to think whether you should, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, they still, you know, we still on the shoulders of giants. We didn't earn it. Um, and, and I even think about that in my own life, you know, what technology am I using that I, you know, I, that I don't think about, Mm -hmm. you know, but I didn't, I didn't earn, you know? And so that, that theme obviously prevalent throughout the whole film and, 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 and the book and, and probably I would say the central theme, Mm -hmm. um, a very naturalistic worldview comes through there. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the natural world is sort of the highest, um, authority yeah. and it's a cruel mistress uh-huh. right it, it it preys on the it just really and the unjust yeah. can't be can't be subdued can't be tamed mm-hmm. um the best thing that you can do is survive yeah um you know so so that obviously bleeds through underneath the 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 scientific and the the technological mm-hmm. um but that piece on you know technology and its impact i think is just you know necessary for us to c- deeply consider it is what uh, the movie is about. Yeah. It really is. And the dinosaurs are there. The spectacle is really impressive to watch. And so if you, if you, I mean, just dinosaurs were not, nobody cared. Sure. You know, nobody cared about dinosaurs before 1993. Sure. Um, kids did because they had books where dinosaurs were running around and they looked like cartoon characters. And and Spielberg literally put flesh on their bones and turned them into movie monsters yeah sort of because some of them are like oh like the scene with the brontosaurus later where they like feed it and stuff um it's like oh these are benevolent like herbivores they're like cows Mm. they'd stomp you flat if you got under their feet but like if you get out of their way they're gonna hunt you down sure but we have a t-rex we have velociraptors which are great movie monsters yeah they really are are. the t-rex of course is a t-rex we've kind of seen that like giant lizard killing people godzilla this is obviously much more grounded sure Um, and and you know we know what we know about dinosaurs from bones we don't have eyewitnesses to dinosaurs we don't and the bones that we have tell a limited amount of information sure we can infer that t-rexes were carnivores because they had sharp teeth Mm mm-hmm Maybe they ate coconuts, but they probably didn't. Um, so, uh, like, there's there's a lot that they know. There's a lot that they speculate on. But, like, when somebody comes to you in a world pre-Jurassic Park and says, we need you to make a dinosaur movie, a real one. We're going to throw a lot of money at it. 
I'm going to get a great cast. It's based on this book that sold a bazillion copies. I need you to bring dinosaurs to life on screen. Uh, they did it to the nines. You yeah. know, they did it perfectly. And, uh, you know, going to your back to your point about technology, um, I mean, we Jurassic Park, I just read an article, and I wish I could remember who it was by. I forgot to save it. But this is, this, this is not my original thoughts, so don't give me credit for this. But that one of the themes that is relevant to today because at the time we're recording this it's october 2021 Mm -hmm. right now the world is experiencing pretty weird times and in the united states we're dealing with a supply chain problem right like we have a bunch of stuff trying to get in it's stuck in california ports can't get off we're having trouble finding trucks we're having trouble finding truck drivers and what we've what we're experiencing is a cascade failure right which is the same thing that destroys sure the technology sure that is controlling the life, uh, the the biological life in Jurassic Park. Right. In both the book and the movie, the cascade failure causes life to escape its bounds. Right. Dangerously. Right. And a bunch of people get eaten. Right. right? And um, so that's that may be where we are, kind of in in society too. There's lessons. There's lessons to be drawn from this, and good stories should have those things. Yeah, sure. And they should they should speak to. Um, you know, a, a really good story should speak to a cultural moment, but yeah. also transcend that cultural yeah. moment. And um, I think Jurassic Park, the story, uh, whether you're looking at the book or the movie or both, does that, right? Mm-hmm. It tells us, it, it warns us of a dependence on technology. It tells us that the natural world um, is not as easily tamed as we might like to pretend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it tells us about... The power that we think we have, we don't... We don't actually. We don't have as firm a grip as we would like to think. Sure, right. sure, and it, and it it does it, you know, well. It does it in a way that is entertaining, that's mm-hmm. gripping, that's uh, engaging. You know, mm-hmm. thought provoking, challenging, even scary uh, at times. Scary at times. Yeah. I was, you know, it's funny. I was talking about Jurassic Park, and I was thought oh, this was back when it was on Netflix. I thought, ah, oh, I'm gonna go watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a you know year and a half ago, uh, but. It is. It actually under the you know horror is one of the mm-hmm. you know yeah. you know and which I think is apt right yeah. and and so it it's it reaches in and grabs us Spielberg the movie specifically just um, is a is a masterpiece right? it really a is a masterpiece yeah. um and we'll we'll cover a few Spielbergs I'm sure sure um, he's done some really good work but uh, this is one of his I mean this is one of his finest hours really um, yeah. And that's saying something for him because he's got several that'll go down as some of the best movies probably ever. Yeah. Um, you want to make a judgment here on which one is better? The movie is better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is an odd, you know, no. it's an odd podcast. To, it's an odd choice to start with. I, You know, when we talked about doing this, I, I really thought, yeah, we're going to be talking about movies and books and, you know, the the yeah. classic saying 98% of the time the book, book is better. Book is better. Yeah. And it's, know? and partly it's just because the book has more, right? Like, sure. You, you you have a story you like you want more of it. I want more of you it. You got to read the book. You know? Right. It's Lord of the Rings. Yeah, we were sure. just talking about that. Like sure. where they they did as much as they could, but like at some point it becomes insane. Just you know asterisk extended edition. <laughs> you know <laughs> right um, where it's exactly. like uh, uh, you know it's it's four hours. It's that that's too much. Right. Um, and uh, but but you can read the book at your own pace and. Uh, I think it's worth reading the book. I think the book was good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I liked that they chopped the end off. Yeah, on the movie. That was they just did. They call. just cut that off and said, "Okay, they escaped. That was their goal. 
enough. Sure. I liked the changes to the characters as they existed. Um, they they worked better for me. Hammond in particular was a positive change. Yes. Um, our POV character is Alan Grant for most of the movie. He was good. Good kind of a good everyman yeah. um, type guy. Likeable. Um, and yeah, that's that's just my opinion. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, movie's better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that you know, focusing on the technological piece, the natural worldview, um, those things are sort of transcendent. Um, I think eliminating the crony capitalist, mm-hmm. you know, taking that as a thematic element, yeah. and you know, keeping keeping the espionage as a plot point is fine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, removing Nedry, that as such a serious is the closest hit. thing we have to a villain, right. really. Um, and then I guess maybe that that Queen Raptor kind of is the other one. Sure, she's the only like persistent adversary that they come in contact with. Right, and the only one that's given an intelligence, right? Like the T Rex is an animal. And yeah. you're like, oh, the T-Rex is scary. It's very primal. And it sort of rips up their cars and they escape from it. And, and then the next time you see it, it eats another dinosaur and moves along. It's right. not hunting them. It's not trying to get them. Right. Velociraptor, not so much. Velociraptor's right. coming through doors. It's looking for them. It, for some reason, has a grudge. Um, and uh, they are smart. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the most chilling scenes in the movie where they somebody makes the comment about like, well, as long as they haven't figured out how to open doors. And then it's a hard cut to the two kids hiding in the kitchen, and you see this door jiggle. Right. And and John Williams makes you afraid sure. with, his, sure. <laughs> with his music. And um, and the and the Velociraptor's looking through the door. This is a puppeteer moment. Sure. And when the thing snorts on the glass, yep. it fogs up. Yeah. And that's the kind of detail that, like, they could have left that out. And it would have probably not been noticeable, but this is, these are artists pursuing yeah, their craft. You know? right. These that's guys right. are good at making movies. That's They're right. good at the effects. I don't know if that's something Spielberg was like, eh, it needs fog. Or if the effects guy or the creature, you know, the creature effects people were like, he's breathing, get a, get some hot, humid air and, or maybe have somebody blow through the, like a straw. And I don't know how they did that. Sure. Um, there's some clever things that they did. I remember one of the great scenes in the movies when the T-Rex is approaching, um, they, they, they cut to water cups that they have in the little right. trucks and they vibrate with the stomp of the T-Rex. And that at first it's barely perceptible, but they can see that. Mm-hmm. Somebody told me about how they did that. They, they had a guitar under the water, like under the deck where they had it and they would pluck a string, which they, you know, they got the sound out, but, sure. um, the vibration made it. No kidding. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and uh, double check that because I, it's been a long time since I read that, but that was something that caught my attention. But those kinds of things, like, they didn't go like, well, what can we do with computers and let's throw everything into the computer like a Marvel movie or something like that. Right. They they had to be creative because sure. it was like, we're spending $10 trillion on animating a 30-second Velociraptor attack scene. <laughs> we can't, you know, we can't keep doing that with everything. Right. So they... um. They had to be, it was kind of like a, it was really a, a transitional movie between sort of the old way of doing it and the modern. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the takeaway, right? Yeah. Is that technology in and of itself is not an evil, an overdependence sure. on it gives you a false sense of security. And, like uh, in uh, the prequel trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> uh, but if you can strike a balance, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an equilibrium, yeah. right, uh, mm-hmm. you can, you can survive and in fact yeah. even flourish and. Um, and that's the problem with introducing dinosaurs back into the 
you know, the ecosystem is there's no equilibrium to be had. Yeah. I think actually that might even be Grant's point in that, yeah. in that very uh, fantastic scene where they're all sitting at the table mm-hmm. and maybe that's, you know, their ecosystem that's... doesn't exist anymore. Right. Whatever it was that kept them in balance, the way our modern ecosystem works, that's not around. Sure. Like they're the only thing that can kill dinosaurs is going to be human beings. Like right. there's no other animals on earth that can fin. Maybe, maybe some giant sea creatures can survive dinosaurs, but like white tailed deer, tigers, like right. the things that we would fear um, as alpha predators in the modern world wouldn't stand a chance against what those dinosaurs are presented as. Yeah, sure. So yeah, he's, um, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot to talk about. We could go on for a long time. Sure. So viewer, reader, Listener, establish an equilibrium and you'll be okay. Uh, appeal to moderation. <laughs> appeal to moderation. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So here's another example, right? Mad Max Fury Road. We're not going to cover that here because there's no book. But that, which is a shame because I like to talk about that movie. Sure. One of the best action films sure. ever. Noteworthy for practical effects. Yeah. Um, spent a lot of effort, a lot of money on just having cars. Right. That literal actual cars that drove through a real desert. I think they filmed it in Tunisia or something like that, North Africa. And they supplemented those cars with some CGI when a car would wreck and there'd be people flying off of it. They don't actually want stuntmen to be killed. So um, they use CGI to supplement that. Is that your, that may be your happy medium right there. There you go. Those cars had a weight to them. There was a mat, and CGI just can't do that. You know, the human eye is really good at distinguishing fakeness, which is why when you have a Raptor CGI, it's a relatively brief sequence. They cut back to it again. Now it's a, now it's a puppeteer. It's a puppet. Now it's a, you know, and our, the the T Rex was a robot, which is interesting because Spielberg had a hard time with the robot and Jaws, mm. but that ended up being helpful. We're probably gonna do Jaws one of these days. Yeah, sure. Because I got a book of that. So yeah, all right. I'll pass it off. But, um, yeah, we digress. So um, I would suggest, by the way, for further reading, um, if you are interested in in Jurassic Park, the pre-reading that you should do for Jurassic Park, you you know what I'm going to say? It's a classic. The pre-reading for Jurassic Park, technology put to use to create a monster that we can't control. Uh, I'm going to go with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You're going to go with the right one. Yeah, Mary (laughs) Shelley's Frankenstein. Now, Frankenstein has some different themes, but... um, Really, all of these kinds of movies are birthed out of Frankenstein. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, scientist does something without thinking it through, basically, and has to somehow deal with the consequences. Right. Um, yeah, that general, movies, fra- that of, general framework is yeah, Frankenstein all the way. And um, and that's what we've got here. Now, there's yeah. more going on, but yeah, that's the gist of it. Science experiment gone awry. Um, and uh, if you, if you uh, really want to go deep, then... You got to go all the way back back to the beginning. You got to go to Frankenstein. Yeah, that's good. Um, great horror classic. Oh yeah, good. We pick. might find a re- might find a reason to do a Frankenstein. There's a couple of Frankenstein adaptations. We might do one. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, well, that's about all I got to say about Jurassic Park for now. Sure. I mean, that's all I'm going to say for now. I could say more, <laughs> but I guess we'll call it there. So we recommend the book and the movie. Is that safe to say? Yeah, definitely the movie. Yeah, give the book a, a critical glance, but it's good. Yeah, worth worth a read. I agree. Um, if you like it, maybe you can pick up some other, um, stuff of Crichton's and try it out. We're going to do at least one other Crichton, um, at some point. Yeah, we're going to have to. 
Uh, where so, can they where can they go if they're in the Cookville area to get all right, a copy so, of Jurassic yeah, Park? Yeah, that was the top part where we plug stuff. <laughs> um, so uh, if you want a book, come see me at Walls of Books. Yeah. Um, we got stores in Mount Juliet and Cookville, and you may have one nearer nearer to you that is not mine. Um, Walls of Books are around. There's uh, about 20 or so now. So, Excellent. Um, if you are in Southeast particularly or if you're in Seattle, then uh, check out Walls of Books. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to send an email to the show, request a movie or a book or a comment or something like that, you can email us at scriptvmanuscript at gmail.com. Um, no periods or spaces as usual. Um, you can also leave a comment on the video um, or maybe on the podcast. <laughs> I've never left a comment on a podcast. I uh, guess you can do that. I guess you can do that too. If yeah. you can do that, you can do that. Yeah. And we'll I'm read sure it. we'll get a notification. If you do it, we'll find it. Yeah. Uh, social media presence. You got one? Uh, no, just the, the, the table is the, the, is table. the only one. Yeah. Tell us about the table. So, you know, if you're, if you're in the Cookville area and you want to talk shop about stories or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just come hang out, uh, play some board games, uh, I am co-owner of a board game lounge in Cookville called The Table, yeah. um, and it's uh, open from 3 to 11, Thursdays through Sundays, and we just hang out and play board games. So yeah. Come by uh, and visit. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time. So I'd also like to plug uh, one last thing, the Servant and Herald Network. Yes. Um, Servant and Herald is a, is a new network of like-minded Christians who are uh, content creators. We are... We're doing a lot of stuff. It's going to be hard to, to really summarize here, but um, check out Servants and Heralds. Um, we don't have a website yet. Not yet. We might by the it's time this it's is it's launched. It's in, it's in its embryonic stage. Um, so if you if you found this podcast, if you found this YouTube or Rumble or whatever video, mm-hmm. however you found it, you're probably going to have a way to, and we're probably going to link uh, Servants and Heralds in our show notes um, or in the uh, below the video. So check that out. There's going to be lots of other folks who are creating content that's different. But if you find our stuff interesting, there's a good chance you'll find that interesting. Absolutely. As well. Yeah. A lot of great authors, a lot yeah. of great minds. Writers. There. we got podcasters and we've, we're starting to get some YouTube types. Yeah. So, so. Um, very excited. Yeah. This, by the way, is our first attempt at YouTube video. So yeah. if the uh, video editing is poor, sorry. Hang with us. Yeah. We we bought a we bought an okayish camera and we got some mics, so uh, we're we're gonna try to get the get the wrinkles worked out. Yeah. So this is our first one, and um, if you're finding this later and you've maybe you've listened to some more recent ones, then welcome to the beginning of the show. There you go. You got anything else for tonight? Nah, I think that's a wrap. All right. Well, that'll be it. Then we will sign off. Thank you for tuning in to Script Fee Manuscript. I am Terry. I'm Joe. And. Good night. Good night.